Everybody, this is Joshua Hatton with One Nation Under Whiskey Podcast. I am joined today, and as always, by my good friend. Yeah, I sounded so radio when I did that. And as always, I was going to say low energy. Low energy it sounded low energy. Did it? Yeah. Should I start yeah. it again? No. no Let's just press on from here and ramp up the energy. No, no, no. How about we drop? How about we sip? I have a sip, and then I'm going to kick it off again. You ready? Here we go. A little sip. Okay. I'll take a little sip as well, and then that way it might be less low energy to me as well. Oh, that's good. There's mm-hmm. nothing like 63.5% mm-hmm. spirit to get you started at 10.39 in the morning. Okay, let's oh. hear this high energy. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, everybody. This is Joshua Hatton with One Nation Under Whiskey Podcast. I am joined today, and I'm joined as always by my good friend, my business partner, my mate, Mr. Jason Johnston Yellen. That was wonderful energy. I feel welcomed to this podcast. Good. I'm ready to keep the energy up on this. I've been inspired by that second introduction. That was good. My hope, my hope is that the listeners stood at attention when that came on. (laughs) You know, just this, the same way, you know, Kim Jong-un's, um, you know, uh, his citizens what? stand at attention when he speaks. So they, our listeners, heard that introduction. They're like, shit got real. This this episode's about to kick off. And I hope that's where this all went. That's a lot of words coming out your mouth that I did not <laughs> expect to hear. That is quite surprising. I didn't expect Standing them to come out to my mouth. attention, Korean dictator. It's okay. This anything could happen in this podcast today. Anything. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. So, was there any reason why the first intro was was on the low energy side? Are you? you, you know, I, I don't know if it, what it's like for you right now in Virginia, very gray, very rainy. It's like a Scottish summer's day down here. Hmm. Well, it, it's 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 kind of gray here. It's been sunny and and warm-ish here in Connecticut. And by warm-ish, I mean forty-five to fifty-five degrees, depending on the day. Surely sunny, and you know what's come out. And I, this should this should wake me. This should have made my first introduction be as enthralling as my second one. What what we've got coming out are the peepers to let us know that spring is here. Do you know what peepers are, Jason? Do you get them? So now we're standing to attention. We've got Korean dictator, and now we're on to peepers. Okay, this is. <laughs> uh, who, who are the peepers in Connecticut, Joshua? Uh, they're they're frogs. They're little baby frogs that have hatched, and they <laughs> they make little chirping noises. They sound like uh, little seabirds. Right, <laughs> peepers. Peepers. You know what? I'm gonna let you listen to peepers. Here we go. What did you think of that? Okay. Yeah. Okay. I've I've. 
feel like I've been to your house in the spring and I've heard that I maybe wrongly thought those were cicadas. 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 No, the cicadas make this kind Paul of Paul like- Sadaka. Was it Paul Sadaka? Yes, Paul Well, in, in just Sadaka in general. <laughs> Paul Sadoku? <laughs> Sadoku. <laughs> you have to listen to his albums nine different ways and they'll have to line up. Is that Susan Doku? Isn't that one of Usador's names, Susan Doku? <laughs> so, so anyway, so th- this is all this is all fun and games. Yeah. This is all well, this is all this is us trying to get back to this high energy with which you led off your second introduction to uh-huh. today's podcast. Yeah. Which I did thoroughly enjoy. Thank you. As you're talking about the weather and we're looking out the window here, it makes me think back oh. to our time speaking with Lee Atwood. Oh, yes. Oh, my God. That's, I'm so glad you brought that up. Yes. Who, who's Lee yeah. Atwood? Just joking. He's, our, he's on our <laughs> podcast today. <laughs> Joshua says after checking the record. <laughs> but when did we speak with Lee? Back in January? Yes. Yeah, it was January because I remember yesterday re-listening to the raw audio and we're telling him, well, f- February is booked and, and we're, we're getting into March here. <laughs> and so, yeah, so that was back in January, which, which is our winter. And, and he was on his summer break. Yeah. He was talking about the day getting into the 40s, 40 mm. centigrade. Mm-hmm. And and we'll hear it later in the interview, but he also talks about the warehouse getting up to 45 centigrade. So so who is Lee Atwood? Who's this gentleman that we're talking with today? He is the very proud owner of Backwoods Distilling mm-hmm. in Yakinanda. 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 Wakanda. Wakanda. Yes. It's nice that that joke was funny back in January and it's funny again here in March. <laughs> Honestly, every time I think of it, I laugh. <laughs> Yakindanda. Yakindanda. Yeah. Which sounds like an absolutely lovely place to, to live. It nice does. part of the world. Yeah, a little kind of, yeah. Artist enclave, rural setting, nice community. Yeah, music, music everywhere. Scorching hot summers that make you want to pass out so all right so so you introduced the man you said who he's with i i want to give a bit of a backstory to Not how who he's we, with who who he is who he is who he and, owns okay what he owns yes sorry but i want to give a little bit of a backstory as to how you and i came to being in contact with him okay somehow and you know what we didn't ask him this but somehow some way Lee Atwood uh, discovered our podcast right around the time that he started distilling at his fairly new distillery, which I think is a year and a half-ish old right now. Checks out. And and what was nice to hear, and, and we may or may not add it, add it in at the end, but you know, he, he sort of list, used our podcast as A, a bit of comedy relief, uh, but but I think a lot of it just to hear the ins and outs of the industry that he was making his way into as he was distilling, and you know similar to what Pete Curry told us, you know mm-hmm. mid last year where he said 
anytime they're training uh, new salespeople, he has them listen to a couple episodes of, of our podcast. Lee was using our podcast to get acquainted with the industry. And that just, you know, I pinch myself when I hear things like that. Well, and just to be clear, we were the only source he used before opening a distillery. Everything Lee learned about distilling came from our podcast. What? That that is remarkable. Did he say that? <laughs> Did he? I don't think he said that. <laughs> Your face was brilliant there. Well, because you because fantastic. you you like you put it out there with such confidence. <laughs> Let's hope that you know everything he learned about comedy is not from this podcast. <laughs> but everything he learned about gullibility is from me. <laughs> um, no, he he talks in the interview about going down to Tasmania uh, and speaking with great people down there and learning a ton from them as well, and then yeah. coming back and running his own experiments, having his own ideas on how he wants his distillery mm-hmm. to be. Uh, from fermentation through distillation, um, through maturation. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't think we left many stones unturned uh, in our conversation with him. There will be plenty of room in the future uh, to to retrace these steps and revisit with Lee and see how things are progressing for him and you know what he's been surprised by and and what did he you know where were his expectations and what betrayed those expectations, what lived up to those expectations. There, there's a, you know, so many places to go with this. And, and just like we often revisit our friends at Catoctin Creek, and just as we revisit our friends at Westland, just as we revisit various friends in Scotland, uh, Lee might be on the other side of the world, mm. but we will definitely revisit with him in conversation. And at some point, you and I are going to get to Australia and Tasmania. There's no doubt about this. Um, that, that it's not going to be in 2019 that much, we know. <laughs> it will definitely not be in 2019. But <laughs> you, know what I, you know what I like about the placement of this episode? It comes just on the heels of our episode with Jennifer Tipperary, where that was the first time we discussed Irish whiskey. Mm-hmm. And this now becomes the first time we're really discussing whiskeys from Australia and and by extension Tasmania as well from down there from down under and I guarantee you that some percentage of our listenership when you said down there thought to themselves it's always the penis with Joshua I guarantee you some percentage thought that and of course you count yourself amongst that percentage (laughs) well it's it's only ever known as down under right and so for you to say down there, like that's what you say to your doctor, like things aren't quite working out <laughs> down there. Like nobody has in their life described Australia as down there well, until you did it in this recorded <laughs> podcast. My, okay. They're, down they're, there. <laughs> My reason for that is, you know, it, in speaking with Lee and, and really in speaking with anybody from Australia... Not to be confused with Austria, by the way, uh, for my for my geographically challenged <laughs> oh my listeners God, here. On a roll. <laughs> oh my goodness! Is that I never want to sound as if I'm just uh, putting forth various 
Australian stereotypes. Whereas down under, and uh, that's not a knife, this is a knife, and shrimp on the Barbie, <laughs> and that's not beer, this is beer. And then you have this massive can of Fosters and, and bees dicks, and I forget. <laughs> you don't know that one? We learned that from uh, Jonathan Bray, where he talks about when you're so close to something, you're a bees dick away. <laughs> <laughs> So, so I'm I'm sorry. I, I may have interrupted a larger point that you were making, but I couldn't let down there go um, unannounced, undiscussed. Well, I, I appreciate it. So, so what you're saying is, had I just led with down under or down under, then I would not have offended. I would just have gone with the colloquialisms used in Australia, right? I think it would have been a bit safer than describing it as down there. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, okay. So the reason that I brought it up is I just thought it was interesting that, you know, the vast majority of our episodes cover scotch whiskey, followed then by bourbon. and, And then we dipped our toe into the world of Irish whiskey and are following it up now directly on the heels of that episode with Australian whiskey. And and I like that we're, I wouldn't call this a detour, but I, I like that we're expanding our general discussion of whiskey. And I was glad to be able to do it with Lee because, you know, speaking with him on that day in January, we had never met the guy before. But hopping on a call with him was like hopping on a call with an old friend. The conversation was easy it was fluid. He had things he wanted to say. We had things we wanted to ask. And it was just, you know, again, one of those really fun industry conversations to be having. That's yeah, all. Couldn't agree more. Listening back to the raw audio was really easy, straightforward, funny. It's, yeah, very happy with it. You could agree more if you tried. If you tried, I bet you could agree just a little more. I doubt it. Uh, it doesn't sound like me. Yeah. So what do you think? Should we let the listeners listen to the interview? Uh, yeah, I think... <laughs> <laughs> we could sit and describe it to them, but we have the audio. We could play it. <laughs> let's, I feel let's, like we have options here. So let's do this. Because it's a three-way conversation, uh, there's really no need for you and I to bring up subjects and then insert... Uh, the the various bits of the overall conversation here. Let's just let the conversation roll as it is. I just want everybody to know that this conversation was done on a video chat and the audio was actually pretty darn good, but it's going to sound different. And you're going to hear what sounds like a sort of a standard video chat audio. And there, there may be some jumbles here or there, but for the most part, I thought that it was pretty damn good. Yeah, the, the part that I wanted to mention about the audio is we started talking with Lee at 6 a.m. his time. Mm. And it was it was still dark. There was a little beginning glow to the sky. Mm-hmm. But you'll notice as you listen to this interview, the birds in his environment mm. get louder as the interview goes on. Yeah. And, and I loved it. I thought it gave him such a, a beautiful place in time um because as you and i were 
speaking with him over video. We were watching it getting brighter behind him. We were seeing definition in the landscape yeah. as we talked with him. Yeah. But I, I like the fact that the listeners will also get an aspect of that in hearing the birds uh, getting louder and, and hearing more of them. It's not distracting, I don't think, but it's definitely there. Look at the birds up in the trees. Yeah? Well, we're not birds. We're a junk band. Yeah, practicing for the talent contest. So let's do this. We'll play the interview, and we're going to reserve Lee's uh, misconception, which is actually going to be a grind my gears um, (laughs) episode instead of misconception. And so we'll do the interview, and I want to, after we hear that interview, I I want us to taste a little new make and and talk about what we look for new make and then talk about what we found in Lee's new make, which I think we, we haven't really discussed. And to date, that's all we've tasted from Lee was his new make. Uh, so I think that'll be good to do. And we've got some questions that came in, so I, w- I want to address a bit of those. And then we'll end it with Lee's misconception. Sound good? Sounds like a plan. Let's get to the wax. We could do wax. So, so where did the distillery fit into this? So you did your, you did your traveling, you did your returning home. You, you've got five acres that you're on. Yeah. Five acres. Um, That's yeah, great. I, That's yeah. Great. I suppose it started. Um, yeah. Look, we were just kind of, uh, we thought, you know, love, love sort of de- develop that love of whiskey and, um, you know, particularly when the kids come along, you know, we'd be kind of sitting around on a Saturday night and, start sipping away and uh-huh. that's the start of the journey and exploring every Saturday night was a new bottle and then it sort of became an obsession and then we sort of decided to make the move up here, um, sort of sell up in the city and, you know, I'm sure it's the same over there but you're, you're selling the city and you get so much more in the country. So <laughs> it's, it kind of gave us a little bit of money there to go, oh, hang on, you know, maybe we could do something and originally we thought it may have to be with someone else or, mm. um, you know, whether we'd go down there path of investors and friends in or, or whatever it was but increasingly we you know we didn't want to do that we just sort of wanted as much as possible to try and keep it kind of my and par team and nice. keep it small keep it simple um so yeah we, we sort of got this property and it had a big shed on it and it's like oh hang on um still wasn't sure about the, the cost of it all and and how we'd pull it together so i took a little trip down to tassie which is kind of our you know our established whiskey region and um but getting around there um it was amazing, you know, just going to all these guys just like what I wanted to be looking in their sheds and going, that's just such a simple setup, you know, I, I, I can do that, you know. So it was a revelation and came home and, yeah, said, that's it, let's do it. Um, and we just sort of went full steam ahead. And so to, I guess to keep all those costs down, you know, we've just repurposed a lot of our gear from um, there's a big dairy industry around here. So, you know, yeah. our mash tun was, was a dairy vat, our Fermenter that that was a, a dairy vat. Uh, I've got some stuff off a couple of breweries around here, and so it all just sort of came together um, that, that way. So cost effective and and location so kind of make it made it a reality. Yeah. You know, when you first start research researching distilleries, you're looking at Scottish distilleries, and you're like, oh my god, <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's never going to be possible for Myron Park. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. But but yeah, Tassie just made it. Um, yeah. Uh, it just made so much sense how they how they did it, you know, just sort of distilleries on a shoestring budget. And so 
So we've, we've done it. Yeah. That's, that's amazing. It, you sent an article a week or two ago, kind of talking about the, the rebirth of distilling in Australia and, and how I, I think it started somewhere in the, the late nineties, sort of rebirthed in the late nineties. Yeah. And I'm wondering, you know, the way you're explaining starting up your own distillery or how should I say this? After reading that article, I'm thinking, man, there's got to be just a, a shit ton of weird legal loopholes that you'd have to jump through to get up and running. But by the sound of it, w- was it easy? Was it difficult? W- what is? What did you have to do? Yeah, it's funny. Like uh, it's like in, in the in Victoria in this state, it's uh, I guess uh, the state itself. It's pretty easy to to get going and get your your liquor license and, and do all that. But the issue you have is with a lot of the councils. So like talking to a like a sort of obviously a community of new distilleries and we all sort of talk and just some of the battles that some people are having, you know, with, with their councils. And it's it's probably largely because the councils don't understand exactly what distilling is and they think it's going to be some horrible, polluting kind of messy thing that's going to go on. Um, so the council we had here, they were really understanding and um, we actually found a loophole and they actually found it for us in that on our on our property there was like a restrictive covenant where we're not supposed to run a business on this place okay and then they kind of found a loophole for us and said well if you qualify for this license you know you don't need a planning permit and you get to bypass all the council and you get to do it anyway so you know you have those kind of councils that just really want you to to exist and 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 be a reason for people to come to the region but but other other people just have horrible problems in council just you know won't let it happen because they'll just have a lack of understanding really that's great to hear council support yeah yeah yeah, it, it is good. And look, I suppose with, with the kind of boom that's going on here, like all of our licensing actually goes through the, the Australian Taxation Office and they grant you your first licence. And to be honest, like they, they've been really supportive as well, you know, for, for a government agency and mm-hmm. the tax man to be supportive and understanding. It's like, what? Really? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, it doesn't make sense. But it's, yeah, it's, it's so in that sense, it's actually been pretty easy for us. But for others, it's been, been quite difficult. So I, you were talking about kind of repurposing, recycling you know, a, a bunch of, or upcycling, I think is the word, right? That's a yeah, good, uh, yeah. I knew if I talked long enough, I would finally stumble upon the right word. Uh, <laughs> it doesn't always happen. It does not. <laughs> um, and so, so with the upcycling going on, you decided to actually have your still built, your uh, still Vester Stallone. Oh, so yeah, that's right. Yes. Good news. So given that you decided to have that built, what was going on in your head there? What was your goal for having it built? Uh, and what are your, your hopes uh, in having that in front of you? Yeah, definitely. Look, I, I suppose um, with, with that itself, you know, like we upcycled most things, but with the still, we didn't kind of want to muck around. And, and you know, I certainly have very very low skill in sort of any kind of metal fabrication. So I was like, I'm not, you know, because a lot of the distillers you went to in Tassie, they'd made their own stills. Oh, like, right. Yeah, I'm not going to, I'm not going to try that. Uh, so I found it. So I found a local guy. Um, he's about, yeah, three hours away. And he's got his own distillery. Um, Mark Burns, his name is. And um, he's just, the, he was just the perfect guy to work with in that he was a distiller. He makes stills. So we probably spent, I don't know, a year or so toing and froing kind of with design ideas. And, you know, I, I was going through all the whiskies that I like and then I was researching their still and, and just trying to find all those little, you know, all those tiny little things that just, you know, can have a huge effect on the flavour profile. Yeah. So 
Yeah, so it, look, it was probably kind of yeah a good year as I said of going backwards and forwards with him and coming up with that with that designer that's still and you know he'd never that's still you might have seen the pictures has you know quite a large reflux ball. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he'd never done anything that big, so he was kind of swearing at me and saying how difficult it was. And but yeah, he, he you know he's he's done a great job um, in the way that it's come together. Huh. Um, and and even kind of. A few a few extra things that he did with the, with the condenser, you know, I was really keen on a, a fair bit of copper in that condenser, and he's gone and um, yeah, he's added thicker copper and yeah, more plates than originally than we originally planned, and it's just mm-hmm. yeah, so it's it's sort of, the condenser is almost like on steroids, you know, it's 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 really um, it cools the the spirit really quickly, and and I had that challenge because all of our all of our cooling water actually comes off the dam here. Mm. Um, so it can actually get quite warm, certainly this time of year. So the fact that it's got like 26 stainless baffles in there, so it can really cool the spirit rapidly despite the, the fact that the, the water is not that cold. Um, yeah, so, um, yeah, really, really happy with the still design. And uh, I suppose as well, I wanted this still to be Australian-made. Um, yeah. yeah. So there's kind of there's kind of two, there's kind of a couple of big still makers here in Australia, maybe oh, there's probably three now, um, but still quite a few people, particularly with like gin stills, they, they get them made in China. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, so I, I sort of, I was really keen not to do that. I wanted to sort of, you know, well, we got Sylvester, you know, he's a great story and, and it's so great that he, um, you know, he's just from a guy down the road, you know. It's <laughs> the Australian That's way, yeah. Who, who did that for you, a guy down the road? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I went back just a little bit before our conversation. I went back and, and tasted the two new makes that you sent. Ah, uh, yes. Yeah, which, which it, you know, I was really happy to revisit them because when, when Jason and I first tasted them, like I said, we, we brought these to Scotland. We we're drinking these in Glasgow with, with David Sturk of formerly of, of Creative Whiskey Company. Yeah. And when we tasted it, it was toward the end of the night and uh, <laughs> uh, a good long night. Uh, but you know, tasting it, tasting them again, I discovered like b- between both the single malt and the rye, this these sort of darker, more vegetal. So a darker presence, but the brighter bits of it were a bit more vegetal. And as, as you're talking about Stilvester Stallone, which is so freaking good, um, <laughs> and, and the big reflux ball and the plates and everything like that, when I hear reflux ball and when I hear multiple plates being used, I'm thinking brighter, floral, fruitier, and that's not what's coming through. So I'm curious... Curious about two things. A, the whiskey that you loved to help design this still, and then how you're using the still to to get this result, these sort of darker flavors. Yeah, I guess. Um, look, I suppose I was a, just starting with the whiskey question. I guess like what whiskey sort of led me to it. I, I kind of enjoyed big whiskey, so I suppose like when, when I was talking about that Saturday night when we sit at home and get bottles, that uh, we we kind of increasingly ended up with kind of. Uh, other whiskies in the end. Um, yeah, that's sort yeah. of where, yeah. So, in saying that, though, I'm not doing anything petered yet. But, um, but, I, but I just enjoy really big whiskies. Um, yeah. um, so I suppose with, but with the reflux ball, I, I sort of thought, well, I wanted to go for quite a short, sh- a shorter line arm, and I sort of wanted the, I wanted the, the distillate to spend more time close to the, close to the boiler um, on the copper. Oh, right. um, so yeah, so so my theory was get get as much copper and, and reflux going as you can in the lower stages, and then 
and then certainly by you know try and get it through reasonably quickly in that from you know from through the line arm I suppose and then I guess down onto the um, the condenser yeah I, look I, I probably thought that to be honest that when the the distillate would come out it would come out a, a little bit lighter and a little bit more floral than it does but in saying that I've probably uh, it's probably the, the the mash bill that's probably doing that I'm, I'm hoping that's what it is okay. I've spent a lot of time trying to get that mash bill to be that kind of deep, dark sweetness that I think you you described. Yeah. Um, so, so I, like in my single malt, I've used a, a lot of like I guess crystal malts, or um, so you know you, that that's really bringing through. I, I feel that kind of honeycomb and caramel flavour, okay. and I, I, I've really turned up the dial on that, um, particularly with that with that with the samples I sent you. Like it, it was certainly present, but now with my mash bill, I, I, I'm putting a lot of it in there, and, it, and I think it's really carrying over quite well. And with the with the rye, I've, I, I think I've, I suppose with that as well, just increasingly, I've just turned the dial up a little bit, and of course, it takes a little bit for it to carry over by the time you work through all your faints. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think I've settled on it too. But that the with the rye, I used a bit of chocolate malt too, and I, I think you really picked that up on the on the finish. So there's a real richness and a darkness to the rye because of not only the rye itself, but because of the because of the chocolate malt. Wow. Okay. So are you, do you divulge your, your mash pills, the various components? Yeah, yeah, sure. All yeah, right. Let's hear it. Let's yeah. hear it. <laughs> so, yeah. So I guess with the, with the single malt, I use, um, I use two kind of base malts in there. From, I, actually, I, I didn't mention with the, with our, the malts that we buy, we get it. They're all single grain origin malts. So we cool. use a farmer really close, um, well, sorry, we use a malt house that are close and they they have all their farmers, but they're also farmers themselves. So they're contracts and farmers. Um, they, so they, they, they malt it all, all there on site. And so, yeah, it's great. We go there um, once a year and we get to actually meet the farmers that grow our grain. And um, so that that's really cool. And and just to be able to ring up and say, hey, you know, how's the rye going this this season? He's like, oh, you know, we haven't had much rain, but blah blah blah. And just to be able to have that contact and almost, you know, that that personal contact with the farmers and with the malt yeah. houses is, is really cool. Yeah. So with the, sorry, with the single malt, we we use two base malts in that, but then we um and I guess the the difference between those is one is really quite a lighter a light malt, so it's kind of a high yielding kind of typical distiller's malt. Mm. But the other one I use is like a this schooner variety, which is kind of a big in the Australian craft brewing scene. And it's kind of has a real, it has a real note of kind of, you know, typical hay kind of grassy. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I use that, the schooner malt and the, um, and that other base malt. And I, and with that I use, which is like a crystal malt in brewing, which is called this, this voodoo oh, malt, okay. which is the, the honeycomb and the caramel. So I end up, I guess the percentage-wise, I probably use about thirty of thirty each of the two base malts and about forty percent of the of the crystal malt. Oh, okay, well, yeah. that's that's really good. So that that helps explain where those flavors are coming from with that with that grassy kind of thing coming through. There's the vegetal notes that I found, and with the crystal malt, there's yeah. the dark sweetness. So that's that's good. Um, yeah. And and sorry, with the rye, it's about that's a my rye is about a sixty forty, so sixty percent rye, forty barley. The the the, the rye, like the rye itself, is actually um, I think I might have mentioned it to you. It's a it's was a it's a wild growing rye that they actually re- recently reclaimed and and um, replanted and, and got it going. So it's ended up being kind of like they reckon about six different ryes that have kind of grown all in together, mm. and um, so a bit of a hybrid, which has meant that um, it's it's a, it's a really rich 
peppery, full-on rye. So to do it 100% was like, uh, you know, that could almost, I think it was a bit too much. So mm-hmm. just turning it down with a bit of sweetness from um, from one of the, I, again, I use that kind of typical distiller's base malt um, and, and a bit of chocolate malt in there as well. And I, I just I just found proving that chocolate malt in just, yeah, I just really loved what it did to the finish of the new make. Okay. Um, so, so yeah, so look, I, I feel pretty settled on on those on the mash bill now. It's it's um, something I'm pretty happy with, and it's going to be interesting to see though how much you know that that little chocolate note on the rye carries over after maturation, and and how much of those flavours from the you know caramel honeycomb kind of carry over as well. Um, so yeah, that's exciting. I, I obviously I keep tracking them, and I and I will send you guys some samples to see what you think of it, if, oh, if it's still it. there or on how how it's going. Yeah. Perfect. That actually leads beautifully into what I was going to ask you next, which is given what we're seeing with Australian climate and maturation, um, what we're seeing in, in you know places like India and uh, Taiwan with, with their maturation, what are you finding with your wood maturation? Now that you're about a year into that, what are you seeing? What are you trying to achieve with the wood that you're bringing in for your mm. maturation? Yeah, good. Yeah, yeah. Look, it's a good question. This is something I really kind of I think about often. In that, and again, it was in that it was in that in that article. Um, in that, I suppose that's going to be the real battle here in our industry about what casks we use. And look, I think Tasmania they kind of now have a bit of a signature whiskey, and they have a they have something that people expect when they buy Tasmanian whiskey. But here here in Victoria, there's no expectation yet. Um, and a lot of the a lot of the older distilleries and the bigger distilleries have locked down, you know, all the all the good supply of barrels. So any any sherry barrels or what do we call it here? We, we can't call it sherry anymore. I think it's called Apra. And so oh yeah, the, right. yeah. So all the wineries that that do that, they're now supplying all the big distilleries. And for little guys like me, it's really hard for me to get access to any of those kind of barrels. So um, so I, yeah. So I guess I think a lot about trying to you know create flavors that from our region and, you know, that I guess the concept of terroir and, and, and trying to do something that's unique to our area. So well, this is the big wine region. So I am, I guess, um, tr- as much as possible trying to use um, barrels from this region. Uh, and I, I am using wine barrels. Um, okay. I'm using some port, some port barrels. Um, I, I am using, a few, like I've got hold of a few um, bourbon, ex-bourbon. And, okay. Um, yeah, but <clears throat> probably as much as possible. Um, it'll be it'll be local stuff. We're under some new we're under some new leads with some new wineries and people you know and someone knows someone and again though I'm a bit cautious in that I'm concerned that if I get too many different types of barrels and you know I'm, I, there's just going to be too much variety and you know what is backwards flavour going to be if I just spread it too far and too wide? Yeah. So yeah. So at the moment, I reckon I've got probably. Yeah, maybe probably eight different barrel types with the two types of spirit. And for the moment, I'm pretty happy with the way that they are tracking. So I'll, I'll try and keep it to those for now and, and not spread myself too wide because I think that could confuse the consumer a little bit. I think probably being small and small batch and people are probably a little bit more forgiving of that. But I, I do want to come up with something a little bit wow. more consistent in the future. Yeah. Yes. Do you envision single barrels for yourself or do you see yourself doing small batch to give yourself some um, variability in, in a recipe? Yeah, look, I, I think both. Um, I, I sort of, I've, I've wondered about that a lot because um, there are a lot of small guys like me in Australia now just doing single cast releases and, mm-hmm. and so, you know, some are brilliant, but, you know, not all casts are created equally and, and some aren't. And, 
and I, I suppose increasingly people are starting to notice that. Um, so I, I want to do what tastes best. So if tasting best means that I've got to um, blend a few barrels, I'll do it. If if I get a fantastic cask, I'll release a single cask. Um, I'll do it that way. Yeah, so I suppose particularly, you know, our first year of production, you're learning still. So they're, 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 to get our process consistent across that year, it, it, it took about six months probably before we were really consistent in everything we did. Wow. You know, found the sweet found the sweet spot with all of our gear and yeah. So I suppose there is going to be real variation in those in some of those casks, and some of them will be absolutely brilliant, and some of them maybe will be good, but not as brilliant as others. So I'll I'll, I'll do whatever I have to do just to to make it taste as best as possible. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'd, I'd be remiss if, if I didn't ask you the yeast question oh, so many yeah. of our listeners are all over yeast yeah, yeah, it's infectious really. <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> and, and given that the Scots larger distillers generally have no interest in talking about yeast it's people like yourself that we get to have the yeast conversation mm-hmm. with yeah, so sure. have you experimented with yeast? Have you settled on particular yeast? Are you seeing some yeast doing something different than other yeast? Or or did you kind of get the wreck from Tasmania and, and run with that? Yeah, look, I, I have mucked around with yeast a lot. It's funny you say people are obsessed with yeast because I, I get a lot of people at Poppy that want to start a distillery and it's one of the first questions they ask me and I'm like, oh, you know, we're not even at first base yet, you know. <laughs> 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 yeah, it's, it's, it's like kids that. nowadays yeast is the new first base <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> yeah um yeah look, I, I i have mucked around a, a fair bit with it um where i've settled so I, I think it's kind of pretty typical of australian distillers though that we kind of do tend to go for brewer's yeasts and experiment with brewer's yeast um and I, you know, I have tried lager yeast on single malts, and I wasn't all that impressed with with that. But um, I, 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 and as well, a lot of, I'm, I think what a lot a lot of Australian distillers do is, is do the fifty fifty, so half brewers, half distillers yeast, um, which is where I've settled. Um, just because when I was when I was experimenting with just the brewers yeast, you know, your yield's not quite as high. Um, so you sort of want that high yield, but you want the flavours from the from the brewing yeast. So, yeah, so doing the 50-50 has worked pretty well for that. You get, you know, it'll chew through all the, all the sugars, but um, but you do get the, the flavour of the, sorry, yeah, you do get the yield. So, yeah, so I've settled on, um, I've settled on a Belgian ale yeast. So, Smart. Yeah, so it's, it's, it's a high yielding yeast anyway, and it does tend to chew through all the sugars, but um, it just, like the, you walk, like you walk into the distillery from, you know, when you pitch the yeast on Monday, it's just, amazing flavours of bread and then come in on Friday and it's just like, you know, bananas and pineapples and just like fruit salad, you know. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, look, I, I, I've, again, go, with that sort of idea of I like big whiskies and trying to create something that probably is a little bit of a big whiskey, I, I wanted to go for something big and fruity and, and, uh, and Belgian ale yeast really, really gets me that, I think. Um, yeah, that seems like a smart selection. So... Yeah. Let me just make sure I'm understanding this correctly. Am I correct in saying that you started off mixing two yeasts together and now you've settled on the 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 Belgian yeast or Yeah, sorry. So I yeah, so with the Belgian yeast I am I'm, I'm mixing it with distillers yeast as well. Okay, so um, in the same washback. So it's not two different washbacks, one with like uh the the distillers yeast and one with the Belgian yeast. 
Yeah, so yeah, in the, wow. same, in the same yeah, in the same wash back. Yep, so I pitch them both at the same time, 50-50, Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, so that yeah, it's inter- like you think, oh, are they going to compete or? Well, yeah. No, they just they, they both reign supreme, and they both yeah, it's just you get really interesting flavors. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So probably the brewer's yeast dominates. Like you, you really notice the flavor of that. But I suppose being a Belgian ale yeast, it's kind of a big, big yeast with big flavors. But then the distiller's yeast will chew through. Chew through all that sugar, so you get that that yield still. Um, yeah. You were yeah. talking about the aromas on a Monday and the aromas on a Friday. Are you doing a five day fermentation, or do you then continue it on into the weekend? Yeah, I, I, they're usually seven days. Um, it's minimum wow. six, seven days. Yeah, and and look, that's just because I've had to keep my day job, you know, to keep this going. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, if, if when we when we do get out and hopefully in the next few years get to run the distillery full time, I, I think I could get away with five day fermentations, no problem. But the, the challenge that I have is that Sylvester is he's electric, so he's got six five thousand watt elements in the in the bottom, and if if it goes in too early, there's uh, it's messy, and you know, okay, yeah. If the yeast hasn't fully um, settled and it gets it gets burned on the elements, it's not fun getting in there and cleaning it out. <laughs> yeah, I guess you don't like have the this. luxury of cold crashing. <laughs> no, yeah, <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. So, uh, yeah. So, look, I reckon five I could get away with, but yeah, seven is just where just through through the keeping our day jobs. Yeah, but I, I don't think it. I don't actually think it makes any difference to to the fermentation or, or, or the flavour. It's just whether or not the the yeast is fully settled. It, it's yeah. it's it's so funny to hear you say that. You know, where where your your own life gets in the way of <laughs> of, of how you're producing your whiskey. It reminds me of a conversation that I had with this guy Tal, who he's one of the people behind Milk and Honey Distillery in Israel. And he was telling me that because of the Jewish Sabbath, when uh, when they're doing their waters in the mash tun, they can only do two waters because of the way the cycle works. If they did a third water, it would interfere with the Jewish Sabbath when they're not supposed to be working at all. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> right? And so it's just yeah. funny to hear these little things that, oh, you know, I've got to work, so it's going to ferment for seven days. <laughs> I can't yeah, work, so yeah. I'm only going to do two waters. You know, it's really interesting. <laughs> and, yeah, and my wife, Bri, of course, says that, you know, family day, so the distillery can't get in the way of that either. So we do want our family time to spend that. So Beautiful. Yeah, uh, yeah so it's, yeah, it's seven days. Cause, um, Until the boys can get in and crank the still and then family all day will be indoors. That's right. They're, they're, <laughs> so, they're, so, they're so eager to help already. It's like... It's too, you know, hot water, too dangerous, uh, but they're so keen to get involved. And it's funny, my, my oldest son, Nate, um, who's he's eight, I think I said, but he was showing one of his friends through the distillery the other day and he, like, nailed it. He was like, this is the mash tun and talked about the process and he went over to the fermenter, <laughs> to the fermenter <laughs> Sylvester, and was like, wow, you know, he, he really listened. He's ready. <laughs> <laughs> See, he's, he's ready and the, the labour is cheap. So, you know, it's, yeah. it's a perfect storm for you. That's, that's right. I'm just going to set up a hammock in the corner. And, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just keep bringing me your cuts, son. I'll taste yeah. them. Yes, yes. It's <laughs> funny. Yeah, yeah. So I, I had a question, and, and I, I don't know if you can answer this or not. For the U.S. market, 
we do have some Australian whiskeys coming in. Obviously, Solvents Cove and and Lark. Well, I guess that's Tasmanian. My geography yeah. is yep. shit, so I so I apologize. <laughs> Fuck yeah, it. they're all Tassies. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Go easy. Um, <laughs> but but all of the stuff that comes in from your part of the world, how's that? Is that better or is that yeah. worse? Okay. That's very precise. Yeah. Okay. The pricing structure is crazy. And mm. I don't know where that stems from. I don't know if it's just a logistics thing and you've got brokerage fees that just, you know, time on the water or whatever you, or, or what have you, or is it tax structures on, uh, on your side of things? Like, do you have any insight in, into that? Uh, I, I do a little bit. I, I, I suppose um, the, the, the structure for, I guess, exporting is a little bit different to, because to, I haven't done that yet, of course, but mm-hmm. um, with my knowledge of what's happening here in that um, we have this incredibly high tax, excise tax that we pay. Um, yeah. I know everyone pays excise on alcohol, but in, in this country it's ridiculous. We, we pay... I think it's eighty. It's almost eighty-three dollars per pure liter of alcohol that you produce. So, wow, that, that ends up being, I think, about ten times more than a lot of the US states pay. Um, you know, we pay double of what New Zealand pay across the ditch. And so, there's a, there's actually now with all the new craft distilleries coming online, there's a real push for reform um, to, to, I guess, to change that. And just you know, because I, I suppose the norm here is a five hundred mil bottle. Okay, and. So most craft distilleries will release in 500 mils, and the I guess the the standard price for that 500 mils is about 150 dollars. So on that bottle, um, you're looking, you know, I guess you're looking at it, but you know, 30 dollars is tax, and then you, is the excise tax, and then you're paying the general service tax on top of that. For the consumers who's com- who complain about it a lot, understandably, you know, they blame us for kind of hiking the price and trying to, um, you know. I guess that we're greedy, but we're not actually at all. It's the it's the government um, and their tax regime, which is yeah, really needs reform. Um, it was funny that a few weeks ago we were at a winery, and I sort of came in on a conversation, and some, it was a conversation on politics, and I came in, and then I started going. I just had my little rant about excise tax, and the guy said, "Oh, hi, I'm the new Liberal candidate for uh, you know for for Indi region," and he was, and his government is in power, and they're the one I'm. I was complaining about, so it was kind nice. of yeah. So, so he got it with with both barrels. <laughs> um, yeah, but with I suppose with the, with what's going on with the prices in the US, I'm, look, I'm not exactly sure of the uh, like obviously the excise is not paid on that, but there must be an export tax that's quite high. Yeah, sure. Sorry, I'm I'm not aware. Um, okay. Yeah, so but I assume it's something similar in that our tax system is just ridiculous when it comes to, to spirits, and, and not only that, the spirits is a different rate to wine or beer. I was just about to say that if, if Australian wines have got such a good foothold in the global market and the government came to a realization at some point that to have a global market or even just to have any kind of market outside of Australia, you would need to control your taxes, your duties in some way. It now seems that if this, you know, we, we say burgeoning, but it seems pretty well established at this point, but I, Australian distillation seems to be doing so well that now if those products are going to do well outside of Australia and have a kind of a global presence, 
they're going to have to have the same conversation. Our hope over here is we always look at how did wineries in the 70s inform craft breweries in the 80s and 90s, mm. which then informed the craft distillers who came on, you know, 2005 and onwards. If one of those informed the others, yeah. how can we make it as best as we can where we're standing right now? And it sounds like that's exactly where you're at right now yeah, uh, in definitely. Australia with, with your burgeoning distillery. Yeah, yeah, I agree. It's funny, like you see that everywhere. Like you see it in the way that, you know, I guess festivals in this region. So it's always food and wine festival. Yeah. You know, it's, it's it should be food and drink or, yeah. yeah. Um, it's so, yeah, so even the craft breweries are still not included in that. And we're, you know, as the craft distillers, we're probably still 10 years behind the, the, where the craft brewers are at. So, um, yeah, so it's a shame that, that it is that way. But we'll, I, I think we will eventually catch up. But yeah, can't happen soon enough. But but you're definitely a foodie culture. And so it, it seems like the bare bones are there ready for the arguments to be made. Mm-hmm. And it seems like you would have some sympathetic ears given that craft brewers and craft distillers are still out on the cold. Um, yeah. Like, let, let's make some more space beside wine. Let's get people... You know, I, having somebody spend $150 on a 50 mil bottle uh 50 cl bottle like that's a big big ask it, it is absolutely yeah are you uh, seeing not that this is kind of on point but are you seeing similar with craft brews like are they expensive yeah they are um if you if you buy anything bottled yeah it's quite expensive um most stuff on tap you know um it's not too bad but as soon as it goes to bottle and you yeah and you're, and you're buying it through, you know, like a, an off-license somewhere, it's, yeah, it's expensive. Yeah. Okay. You can pay you can pay about $90 um, Australian, so whatever that is, converts to US for, a, for you know, a case of beer, 24 bottles. So oh, okay. Okay. For a craft beer. So mm, we're, we're so used be. to our six-packs over here that have become four-packs. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. 24 is like, whoa, we're moving. <laughs> the price yeah, doubles yeah. and you get two fewer beers. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, the bottles are smaller now and they're in a little four-pack, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> man, oh, man. Um, so will you be able to sell on-site? Uh, are there any limits going on there? Uh, yeah, there are. Yeah, so we, because of what I mentioned earlier, we can't actually have a cellar door here on, on the property. Okay. Um, but but that's we've got plans with some other local businesses and that we are actually looking at a, um, a little spot on the high street in Yakandanda. So um, within the next year or so, when hopefully we have whiskey coming online, or maybe two years, we, we should have a little cellar door there and we're probably going to try and even include just a, a smaller still and sort of have it as a bit of a, you know, a tourist hub and um, a local work with a local brewery. So their brewery equipment will be there. Our, you know, a part of our setup will be there, but we'll probably try and still do the majority of the work here at home in the shed. And then on, you know, it's, it's quite a touristy town. So, you know, on a Saturday when there's lots of tourists around to have a little still yeah. going and get those smells going out on the street would be, that's, that's very cool. So that's a bit of a, yeah, that's a bit of a dream. And um, it looks like it's going to come together pretty well. So Nice. It's always yeah. a shame to, to have that disconnect. We've, we've had the same conversation with, with distillers here in the US. If someone's going to take the time to come to your distillery, if they cannot walk mm-hmm. out the door with a bottle, then yeah. something has failed. Yeah. Uh, you know, to I, get them to remember your name as they go into a store, 
But to, to have your own little store down downtown or in town uh, sounds like a really smart solution for you. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, um, I, I couldn't agree more. Like, just pe- people come and they, as soon as they come and they, exp- you know, it's when it's an experience, they just want to buy something. So we, we do need to fix that in that, you know, we're, we're never going to have huge volumes to turn out, but I, I, I would prefer to turn out our volume like what we have from face-to-face contact rather than online sales. You know, that, that will always be an option, but I think we want backwards to be a bit of that experience and, and you know, people come and know us and know that we make it and, and buy it for that reason is the plan. Yeah, um, exactly. Yeah, yeah. What is your output, by the way? What, what are you looking to do? What is your potential per year? Yes. Yeah, so, so this year we we made so we do hundred liter barrels. So we did thirty two. So we're about three thousand liters a year. Okay. Um, so next year we'll we'll do the same. Um, and again, <clears throat> that three thousand liters is based on working kind of one day a week and what our banks bank balance can afford to make at, at the moment while whilst we're not getting that return. So, you know, if we, ha- if we have kind of 60 barrels down by the end of next year, I'll, I'll be pretty happy with where we're at. And I think then when we do step away from our, from our day jobs, that the business will be quite sustainable with the product that we have sitting there. But when, when we go full time, there's always going to be a bit of a storage problem here. You know, our bond store is, is pretty small mm-hmm. and what we can fit in there. But again, there's a lot of other local businesses that are happy to work with us and, we can get some some space in, yeah, in particularly a lo- one of the local breweries that we're working quite closely with. They're happy for us to put some some barrels in there. So I reckon we'd, we'd easily double production when we're full time. Probably, you know, we could even triple it with the equipment that we have. And oh, yeah. okay, so oh, okay. yeah, That's good. yeah. So I think you know we could potentially probably the, our max output would probably be something like nine thousand liters a year with the current setup. Yeah, we'd have to spend a bit more money, I think, to to do any more than that. Okay, that's good. There's still investors ready to go, though. Yeah, yeah. Look, we, we probably yes, <laughs> he's ready. And look, you know, you walk into the shed and you see the size of Sylvester. It's like, whoa, you know, like he's big. <laughs> he's big for the space, but um, but that's why we didn't want to have to, you know, um, upgrade again in a few years. Um, so that, yeah, there's only one Sylvester, and he's he's big. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> For anybody that's interested who's listening, you can go to www.bagwoodsdistilling.com.au forward slash products. And there's a great photo of you uh, next to Mark Burns in front yeah. of Sylvester. And um, yeah. let you see the size of that still uh, <laughs> and the room for growth that you've got as you move, use more it's, of Sylvester. Yeah. See, yeah, I, no. I, I thought you were going to give a link to the actual Sylvester Stallone <laughs> porn movie to show how big the actual Sylvester Stallone is. <laughs> yeah, no, this, this Sylvester is much bigger than that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I think it was a cold day in filming uh, for that movie. <laughs> I'll, I'll throw the man a bone if you see what I did. There. Hey, that's right. <laughs> So, I had a question. So, you're, you're doing you're doing single malt, you're doing rye, and I'm just curious if there's any history of rye distillation in Australia. Yeah, it's actually um, quite limited, I suppose. Look, I, I'm not sure they were making um, like before the kind of you know resurgence or renaissance in Australian craft spirits. I'm not sure that I'm unaware of any rye um, spirit 
or any rye whiskey being made. But um, there's a little bit now. There's a few distilleries that are turning it out. Um, I'm not sure if you're aware of Peter Bignall in Tasmania, Belgrove Distilling, but he just, I think he won the world's best Southern Hemisphere for his peated rye. Oh, nice. um, in the Jim Murray Whiskey Bible of 2019. Okay. Um, yeah, so he he's sort of, I guess, very popular around these parts now and he's um, he, he was kind of a bit of an inspiration for our distillery and his, his distillery is so, um, I guess, shoestring budget and, you know, he's got it in an old dairy and most of the equipment he's actually invented himself. Like he, he actually fires the still with the head, so he cuts out the, the four shots what? and then he trickles it back in underneath the still and the and it, and it heats it. So he's got this whole sort of biofuel kind of, wow. yeah, very cool. If you, if you get a chance to look him up, um, he's, a, he's a fantastic um, distiller. But so he, I guess he, he's doing a lot for Ryan in this country and making it popular. So, yeah. There's give, a, give us the name again, uh, Lee. It's, it's Belgrove, Belgrove Distillery in Tasmania, and the, the distillery is Peter Bignall. Bignall. Yeah, so wow. really incredible rye. Yeah, um, yeah. so there's um, Archie Rose is a big distillery in Sydney. They haven't released anything yet, but they're, they're doing a lot of right. Um, and, look, there's only – there's not – look, I, I know, there's us, there's there's those two, and I don't think there's a whole lot of other right going on. So I'm kind of excited by that because there are a lot of single malt distilleries coming online. Like, you know, every month there are, there are a number of new ones. So I, I'm sort of hoping – I'm a big fan of rye, and I, I'm kind of hoping that rye will be our kind of point of difference and um, – and particularly the rye we use, that, that, that rye grain that I spoke about before, that we are the only distillery using that exclusively in our, yeah. in our, in our mash bill in Australia. So um, I'm hoping that sort of, again, brings us something that's a little bit more unique. And is that, are you malting that rye or is it unmalted? It's malted. It is malted. malted. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 It'll be, it'll be really interesting to see how that matures because as a new make, I, I think it's fantastic. Of course, you, you sent it to me, and actually, I'm glad we're bringing this up again. You had sent it to me at 45% alcohol. Yeah. And can you remind me, uh, again, the reason why you sent this at 45 and the single malt at, at 65? Yes, it's not a great reason. In that, When I was finally deciding it to send, I was like, oh, yeah, I've got to send that stuff to Joshua and Jason. Um, I, we'd been using some of that 45% for an event we, we were making um, in a was like in the winter we had a, an event where we we're selling hot toddies which is like a little rice spirit um yeah. hot water lemon and honey yeah and it was sure. like yeah it was a hit so we're selling these on these really cold wintry almost snowing day and people are drinking these out of these enamel, enamel cups and when i went to go and get your samples i was like oh no like i, I barreled everything it's that, <laughs> that i had at 65 i'm like i'll have to send you a little bit of the, the 45 so i should send you some 65 <laughs> so yeah, <laughs> Not, not a great reason. Um, no, no other reason that, uh, yeah, that uh, I run out of 65. Yeah, it's all in the barrel. Yeah. That's funny. That's funny. Well, it's, yeah. you know, the, the, the addition of water, though, I think helped to bring out some of the oils in it. I thought the texture was fantastic. I thought the flavors were, were really nice. Of the two new makes, I, I think I may have enjoyed the rye a little more than yeah. in the single malt for, for whatever reason. Um, yeah. But it'll be really interesting to see what it's like after being aged in cask for a while because, um, and I, I mentioned on the podcast before, typically I'm just not a fan of malted rye, but I'm really enjoying what's happening in, in your new make. I think it's delicious. 
Yeah, I think, thanks very much. I, I remember when I was, uh, I'm not sure whether it was before or after I sent you those, and then I listened to your episode on variety and you were going, oh, multi variety. No, like, you don't like it. I was like, oh, no. He's going to hate it. So I'm very glad that you like it. That's, that's uh, yeah. That, that brings you up to two malted rice that you like now? That is. Yeah, that's uh, the Zudam, uh, however it's pronounced in, in this. So that's, that's yeah, two for two there. If we get to three, wow. you're not allowed to say you don't like malted rye any longer. I know, yeah. I know. It'll be, I'll have to delete that episode. <laughs> <laughs> It'll be part yeah. of the history. Um, so I, I was reading online that, that Australian uh, distillers don't tend to have refill barrels because they just get absolutely everything out of it the first time they use it. Yeah. Um, are you seeing that, prepared for that? You know, is that on your radar? How are you? Yeah, um, yeah, it is. I'm, I'm seeing that for sure. Like I, I look at like if I, what I, the stuff that I barreled just in December, like right at the start of December. And if I look at the colour of it now, it is, it's there. It's, it's already a dark whiskey. Like, so the, the weather here just works the barrels. That just, you know, like, like really in this hot, hot weather, the daily, the, what's going on in that barrel on a daily basis. I've had to manage it quite quite carefully. Like the, the pressure that's building up in the barrels is insane. Wow. So like in the morning I go in and the bung is like really sucked in, like, you know, to the point where you can hardly even pour it out like a silicon bung. And then wow. by the end of the day it wants to shoot it out. Like, <laughs> wow. like some of them some of them do pop out. So it's just the, you know, like, and I suppose with my, the, the distillery is not insulated. So I, I tested well, the temperature in there yesterday was, or the day before was 45. Um, so it's, it's, it's really making the, the casks work hard. So I think our climate just means that we get everything out of that barrel the first time. And, um, you know, I, I will, I'll, I'll see how I go. I'll try and refill yeah. for a second fill in some of the casks. But yeah, it's hard. It's, from what I'm seeing, I don't think there's going to be a whole lot left. Um, wow. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. Wringing out a sponge as hard yeah. as you can and then just chucking it because there's nothing left. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Look, I've only just, you know, I've only been recording kind of the angel share evaporation for, for a year, but, you know, yeah. I reckon we're looking at about 10% um, a year. Fuck. So it's a lot. Yeah. Do you yeah, agree? agree. <laughs> do, do you see yourself down the road when you're finally you know, emptying casks and filling bottles. Uh, do you see yourself partly in an attempt to save money doing some dechar rechar of the casks that you have? Possibly. Um, yeah. I, like the, the one, most of the ones that I've got have, have already happened. So they've been wine barrels that have been cut from 225 litres, cut down to 100 litres and recharred. So oh, but they've been shaved and recharred. So I reckon there may be one more of those in them, um, possibly. But it depends, you know, like some of the stays are quite thin, so those barrels will probably go out, but oh. the ones with the, with the thicker stays probably, yeah, maybe another shave and a char and see how that goes. But, um, yeah, that would be interesting, you know, to see if it's an option. Um, there's certainly, you know, if it, as a way of, I guess, saving a few bucks on, on casts, that would be great, but uh, only if they're good. Yeah. You were mentioning earlier about the number of uh, ex-wine casts that you're using. Have you had any access to... Uh, new charred oak for the rye to see. What yeah, that- I, yeah, um, I, it's something I've been toying with a bit more recently. Actually, like I, I sort of initially, my thoughts were that I 
didn't want to create an American-style rye. I wanted to do something that was kind of Australian. Um, yeah, so, so like, and, and, you know, American ryes are fantastic. And, and just to, there's no need for me to recreate one because there's so many good ones out there. You don't have so to say to, that just because I'm here. You know, that's... <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, our, and our listeners are American. Sorry about that. <laughs> um, yeah. So, but but I don't know. More and more, a few people have said it to me, and they said, "Why not? Like, it's it's a unique rye grain that you're using. It, you're aging it in Australian conditions, so it will be an Australian grain." Um, so I'm probably thinking a little bit more that they're that they're right now. So I might do it. Yeah, um, you. Uh, I still think you're smart to carve out your own niche there as well. One of the things that, you know, I've, I've said plenty and, and on the podcast <coughs> is that the worst thing that we've got with American craft distillers is that they're producing a product called whiskey and they immediately yeah. compare to other well-established products called whiskey. And I don't yeah. think it helps anybody. And so if you can get away from that, why not get away from that? So um, yeah, I'm just curious because everything you're describing, the 10% angel share, the high heat within your, your storage area, it sounds like Kentucky. And so it'd be interesting yeah. given that your rye isn't a Kentucky rye, what it would taste like given those different um, uh, aspects of maturation. So really yeah, just a whiskey geek in me that's curious. If you do one barrel, that'll make me happy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it. I should just, I'll throw a few down, I think, this year just to, to see how we go. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. Um, I'm not sure if you guys saw that. I, I've, I've sort of, I, um, I've created some unique casks in that I got some red gum casks made. So mm. um, Australian hardwood. Um, so I, in our sort of, R&D stage, I did a fair bit of, um, I did a lot of trials on it and I had some really um, old and, and dried red gum and I just, I made little staves and I just artificially charred some new make, I oh, sorry, charred the, the staves and, and, and aged some new make in it. And the results were really interesting, like huh. really not, not at all what you expect in mm. that. Um, you know, so everyone thinks, oh, you know, red gum, you're going to get that eucalyptus-y kind of sure. um there's a really slight hint of that, but it's actually a really sweet wood. And um, the red gum itself is actually more porous than than the oak. So it sort of almost gets more filtration. And I think the age of it, you know, probably the, the maturation process will be even faster because of all the extra pores in the wood. So I've had, I've got a rye down in a red gum cask and I've got a single malt down in a red gum cask. And okay. they, uh, yeah, I'm really happy with the, with the way they're, progressing um wow yeah so, yeah, so they're, they're quite cool um I, i'm not sure though in the states whether that would qualify as whiskey though it, so it, it, does, it, it does not and that that's that was going to be my my next question you know it in the states if we're producing a rye whiskey you've got to use new chart oak yeah and yeah. you cannot you actually can't call rye rye unless it's in new chart oak if you use say an X rye barrel or an X bourbon barrel, you can call it whiskey from a rye mash bill, but you can't say rye whiskey. And but so remembering that there's no time limit to yeah. its contact with New Chard Oak. Yeah. So it could kiss New Chard Oak for a second. A rye. Yeah, right. Okay. Yeah, um, it's not like it's two years in New Chard Oak or anything like that. It can be uh, 10 minutes in New Chard Oak. Yeah. 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 Right. So, yeah, it's a it's a lot looser here, and that it just yeah. for definition, it just said has to be in wood. So, oh wow! Yeah, no, it doesn't specify. Um, Is there so a time yeah. period? Like, do you like the Scots have to do three years in a day? Uh, what about in your yeah, name? Two years. Two, two years. years. Okay. Oh, yeah. Two years in yeah. wood. 
two years in wood. Yep. Simple as that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So look, I, I suppose as well, the, the whole red gum thing, I think it is a bit of a challenging for some consumers. I think you know, that's all whiskey and, you know, it might start a few arguments and a few debates, but that's probably good, good for it's us. It's good. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. But like probably of all the casts, that's the most interest we've had from Australian consumers. Like we've just had so many people call up and say, who made them? Where'd you get them? And um, yeah. Wow. So there, there, there actually was a release from a, a, a little Tasmanian distillery that had a 20 litre red gum cask that they released about oh, probably six months ago. And they, there was so much demand for it that they had to have a ballot. And, um, well, and I think they, they sold it for about, I think it was about $480 a bottle for a 500 mil. So it was, <laughs> there was some serious, yeah. So, you know, that's not, that wasn't our inspiration for it, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yours have um, been in, in red gum yeah. for about five and a half months. Is that what you were yeah, saying? Yeah, that's, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 Right, at that rate, we'll only need to make two casts a year. So, yeah. Um, are, are your are your red gum casts also twenty liters, or are they larger than that? Uh, they're hundred liters. Yeah, good. Okay, good. Yeah. good. Is that standard for you? Is it is hundred liters your go to? Yeah, hundred liters is. Yeah, a um, c- couple of reasons for it in that this kind of I suppose the space that we have they're they're yeah. easier to work with. You know, I can I can move around the floor. We've only got a small kind of walkie stack of thing, so for this yeah so anything bigger than the 100 liters it's just hard to handle in the space that we okay. have but but also for speed of maturation because of that more surface area to liquid within a 100 liter barrel yeah. um we can get things out a little bit sooner but you know as we we're talking about before even in like i've got a couple of um 225 liter casks and you know the way our barrels work it's going to be fast anyway but um in our environment but yeah i, I think yeah, 100 litres for, for speed. Oh, okay. Well. Yeah, I, d- speed. I did the quick conversion on 100 litres is 26 gallons. Yeah, and so, so yeah, that I was going to, for American listeners, it's half the size of a bourbon barrel or a fifth yeah. the size of a, a sherry butt. So just a, a bit smaller than a quarter cask, really. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. 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 And again, yeah. that'll move fast, just like you're saying. Yeah. And so... Yeah. And so, you know, here in the U.S. for for the smaller producers we have here, one of the issues that a lot of consumers find is that the producers are putting their spirit into smaller casks and they're finding that the wood, you're getting more woody notes than you are getting, you know, whiskey notes, you know, that the time and cask doesn't doesn't allow for the spirit and wood to marry the way that it would in a larger size cask. But I wonder, does that not ring true for you because of your climate? Like what do you, what are you finding is happening in your, so far in your hundred yeah. casks? So, so far, I think the, the balance is still there. Um, but you know, that, that's going to be something definitely to watch. Um, it, it is pretty much the industry norm here to do hundred liter casks. Okay. Um, so it, it is going to be interesting to see, like, particularly, you know, because really these these parts of Australia are largely untested. So, you know, so our, you know, our cast, if we do get to that point where we find that balance is kind of skewing a bit, then, yeah, we, we, we may have to just go to, to 200 metre casks. Thanks to Lee for spending so much time with us in a January morning. As you just heard, summer for him, winter for us. 
but what a blast. What a, yeah. what a great conversation. What an easy conversation. Mm. And what a fun guy. You can't help but hope for his success and to follow along, see what he's up to. Follow the website, follow him on Instagram. He's a solid follow on the Instas. Yeah, as, uh, that's... the kids haven't said in a while. <laughs> kids don't say that anymore? I don't think so, Joshua. I, basically, if, if we know to say it, the kids have stopped saying it. Fuck. Yeah, it moves real fast. Wow, that's that's really off the chain. <laughs> so you'd mentioned before we went into the interview mm-hmm. that when we came back from it, we would taste some new make. Right, so, so I wanted to do a, a little experiment here. Lee had sent over two different new makes, as, as you heard on the interview, sent over two different new makes. One was his rye new make, which is 60% rye and, and, and malted rye at that, at 45% alcohol. And then he sent over his single malt at 65% alcohol. And what I wanted to do was compare it to new makes that we love. Right? There's certain things that you and I look for in new make, specific qualities we look for, and then we know what it turns into or what it should turn into 5, 10, 15, 20 years down the road. And I, I want to see if we can find some of those things that we love in the Scottish new make that we have, see if we can find those things in Lee's new make. I think from, from a new make starting point, you're, you're able to look at some things in common. Obviously what Lee had just said there about maturation, mm-hmm. he's going to have a completely different style of maturation yeah. than we see in Scotland. It's, it's, it's going to have the liquid coming in and out of that wood, coming in and out of that oak uh, very, very quickly and, and every day. The way he described the pressure differences from morning to, to night are just things we're not seeing in Scotland. So, so the maturation is going to go off and do its, its own thing. And on top of that, not just how it matures, but what it matures in. He's... You know, he's got a multitude of wine casks available to him simply because Australia produces so much wine. Uh, you don't have to import, you know, spend the money on importing bourbon barrels, though he's, I think he said he has some, he had some of yeah. those and some new make or some new charred oak as well. So, A, the maturation is different. B, what the spirit will actually mature in is going to be different. But we'll taste some of these flavors in a bit, but I think he should be damn proud of his, of his new make. And I would imagine just like any producer, he, he's going to want to experiment to see what the new make does in this type of wood or that type of wood. Oh, for sure. And, and make yeah, sure no that the spirit that. Isn't, isn't hidden, if you were, yep. you know, that the wood just doesn't overtake it. Well, I think that's the lesson. Um, I, I've talked previously about having a whiskey society up in uh, the Palouse in the, the inland northwest of the United States. And this past year, we've been putting new make spirit up against mature releases from the distillery. Hmm. And it's been really interesting that new make, when you taste it just as a standalone, it's fruity and rich with a nice heavy texture. It's really interesting when you then go on to taste a mature product that has come from that new make spirit. Yeah. And then you return to the new make spirit. New make spirit 
is lacking. It's, it's lacking a certain framework that the wood definitely delivers mm. through maturation. Yeah. And it's, it's really interesting that it's not until you put the new make next to mature spirit that you start to see the flaws within it and why we do traditionally put new make spirit into wood. It really does do an important job. Well, I, I think new make, you know, the perfect metaphor is is a child, right? You you have this child that has potential, and in which direction do you lead that child in? If you put it in bad wood, it's going to be a bad whiskey or a bad kid. If you put it in good wood, it could potentially be a good kid. And if you look after it, and 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 so on, so you have this new make spirit that is just all potential, but it is incomplete. It is lacking because it hasn't had its environment. And I think, you know who it is? I think it was uh, Jim McEwen that used this analogy where where the cask is like, is, is the parent, is the mother, or is the father that that helps that child become an adult. And, and I, I think that's kind of a good way to look at it. Yeah, it's always interesting for me because I really do like new make. Uh, and I've certainly got some favorites throughout the industry. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Cole being one, Glenn Murray being one, Glenn Farkless being one. And it's funny because as you sit and, and <clears throat> sip on it, and it's not something that I pour of an evening and sit down with some new make and read a book or watch something on, on the TV, it is more just pouring it for the, the flavor experience. But it really is a case of if you just drink it by itself, mm-hmm. it seems to offer up a lot of things that I like. And I, I don't necessarily think about the wood in its future. I don't necessarily think about what it's going to be like when it's grown up. It's just what flavors am I being delivered right now in this instant? And yeah. am I enjoying them? Right. So with that in mind, and, and we're lucky. We're lucky that we have the new make that we have and the access to, to the new make that we have. With that in mind, you've picked a favorite new make to put in your glass. I've picked a favorite to put in my glass. Tell people what you have in your glass and what you're looking for and what you're finding. <laughs> so I've got Glenn Farkless new make. And I, and I love Glenn Farkless new make because if you think about Glenn Farkless being so world-renowned for heavy, sherry, mature whiskey releases, mm. this isn't even just a bourbon matured Glenn Farkless. This is Glenn Farkless absent of any wood. <laughs> and given what sherry can do to a whiskey with, you know, whether it's those heavy dark fruits, whether it's a sweetness, whether it's um, a certain weight... I want to know about the new make that is going into that cask. Exactly. And so immediately it's bright fruit that comes out of here. It's this wonderful um, tinned pears Ooh, nice. is what I get with that, um, that sweetness of that syrup in which the, the tinned pears are stored. But then the, the fruit notes and the bright fruit notes are often prevalent in an unpeated new make spirit. Hmm. What I then go looking for is the presence of the barley. I want to see if there's a cereal note going on oh, in okay. there. And I, and I will say, 
it's cereal that tends to do the best when it meets good wood. Mm. The cereal become, can become this really pleasant malty presence. I think malt can give a nice structure to a mature whiskey. Yeah. In New Make Spirit, I get it being a little grassy. Interesting. And so it's, it's still that freshness that, again, will become something richer. But, it's yeah, the, the way the tinned pears meet that grassy cereal note, very bright, very, very light. You know, we're texture guys, we're weight guys. Um, we often talk about even a texture on the nose. Mm. And for me... New make is always very light on the nose. It's very volatile, right? It's still at that 63.5% yeah. barreling strength. And yeah. so it's it's evaporating constantly as it's in the glass. What what I found interesting about the Glen Farkless New Make is you've got a distillery that is producing their spirit using direct fire on their stills. So for whatever reason, my preconceived notion of a direct fire still would make it so that the spirit would be a bit heavier for some reason. I don't know why yeah. I have that notion, but... Yeah, I'm not sure where that comes from. Uh, obviously, you and I talk about worm tubs a lot. Mm -hmm. And and someone like Old Pulteney, their new make spirit is so incredibly rich and oily, mm. meaty and savory. Yeah. Same as Craig Ellicky. Yeah. Oh with yeah. With their yep. warm tubs. Yep. And and I've got none of that in this Glen Farkless. I get none of that in Glen Murray. I get none of that in uh, Balblair, right? It's it it's just this much lighter presence. And and just as I quickly mentioned Old Pulteney there, one of the things that always strikes me about Old Pulteney is as it becomes mature and they release, say, the 12-year-old, I've I've tasted the 12-year-old from Old Pulteney right next to the new make from Old Pulteney. You wouldn't think it was the same spirit. Hmm. The, the weight, the meatiness, the savouriness, it all goes away in the 12. The salt remains, but the meatiness is gone. Interesting. That's really yeah. interesting. Yeah, so I'm, I'm going to pause on the nose of the Glenfarclas, let you do the nose on yours, and then we'll come back and I'll okay. give this a little taste and describe what's happening. So I, I selected a little bit of Craggenmore new make. Okay. And you and I had gotten this new make back in 2014, and, and there isn't a lot in the bottle. So with that said, this is oxidized a bit, so it may be a bit different from what you and I experienced now almost five years ago. But I selected it as a favorite because while yours is light and grassy and and pear drops, the Kragenmore is a bit heavier by comparison. And there's almost like a waxy citrusy note that comes through. And part of the reason that I chose Kragenmore as as the new make spirit is I wanted to compare it against uh, Lee's own single malt new make because I recall it being a bit heavier in style, even though he's got that reflux ball in yeah. Stillvester's Stallone. Uh, <laughs> there was a heavy. I laugh every it. time at that name as well. <laughs> but there's texture all over the nose on the crag. And 
a little bit of like an umami, like a little brininess going on as well. But but that sort of citrusy, waxy quality on the nose, I think, is is stunning. Yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned that citrus. As I continue to sit here with the Glenfarclas, I've got almost like uh, a crystallized uh, lemon rind mm. going on. So there's still sugar there. There's still sweetness there. Yeah. But there's also that addition of citrus happening as well. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I, I like, as you were saying that, I was thinking to myself, there's almost like a candied orange peel note going on in mm-hmm. the Kragenmore. Mm-hmm. So nice to see. So we're finding a citrusy quality coming through on Scottish new make. In a separate glass, I've got Lee's new make. Oh, awesome. Perfect. Yeah. Oh, gosh. Sorry. I just tasted the Glenfarclas. We'll circle back to that in a second. Yeah. Oh. So the clear difference, the clear difference between the Cragamore and this. This being the backwoods? This being the backwoods is the backwoods worn. Noses, it's a bit more earthy. It's a Mm. bit more cereal forward. Those cereal notes that you were looking for, I'm getting here. It's damp malt and heavier malt. Which could also speak to, you know, there there are multiple moving parts here, but it could even speak to a slower distillation where you're building more of those oils. You're getting a bit more uh, of that weight from it. Hmm. But it it, it could also not be that, and it could be a hundred other things. Well, another thing to think about is he's got his seven-day fermentation as well, right? What is that fermentation doing? That that Kragenmore's isn't where I think Kragenmore is sixty to seventy two hours, and so Lee has. I, I remember it being a quick turnaround. You've yeah. also got your combination of brewers yeast and distillers yeast good, in the backwoods, and you've got your straight up distillers yeast going on in the Kragenmore. Which, listening back to the interview with Lee, he talked about mixing brewer's yeast and, and distiller's yeast. And at that time, we said, ooh, that's interesting. Never heard of that before. And then when you <laughs> and I were at Old and Rare talking with uh, Dennis Nickel, who was the you know distillery manager there late 70s up until 1980, I think. Uh, yeah, he, there being Lefroig. Sorry. Who was at Lefroig <laughs> in, in the 70s up until 1980, he talked about that switch of brewer's yeast to a mix of brewer's and distiller's yeast. And now, of course, it, it's straight up distiller's yeast. So Exactly. Yep. No, I had the same experience listening back to the audio. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, wow. That's what LeFroy was doing in the <laughs> late 70s and 80s. Anything to add? Sorry, we, we kind of got off track there a little bit with the LeFroy. Anything else to add on the nose of the backwoods single malt? Overall, it's less sweet. Like there's a sweetness to it, but it's it's heavy and dark. Where by by contrast, the the Kragenmore, while it has sort of a heavier nasal texture to it, that you know you've got those bright citrusy notes going on, and that slight saltiness going on. And I don't find that brightness to this. I think it's it's beautiful and it's its own animal, and it's obviously going to do things different on the palate and different in wood, of course. But, um, you know, it's interesting. I grabbed the Kragamore think I'd, thinking I'd find a connection, only to find out, at least as far as the nose goes, I haven't found a connection. Mm. 
Yeah, you thought they had that weightiness in common? Yeah. A, a heaviness of spirit? Yeah. Okay, so let, let's circle back to, to the beginning of our three here. Okay. Um, we've, we've given the nose on our Glenfarclas Crag and more and backwards. Let's delve into the palate here. I did taste it a moment ago just as you were starting to, to uh, sniff just as you were starting to nose, I think is a much better way of saying it, the backwoods. And I was really blown away by an aniseed note that I'd never expected <laughs> to get on the Glenfarclas palette. Uh, I, yeah, I was, I was quite floored by that experience. So here, so, here comes another sip. Yeah, go yeah. ahead. Take, take the other sip, and I want to see beyond the aniseed what you expected to find, and did you find it? And what else unexpected did you find well the thing for me is that is always the way in which you know if you're at a distillery and they'll do a tasting at the end of a tour and they'll start with a new make and then lead into the mature spirit mm-hmm. it's always interesting when they say no don't drink it for goodness sakes don't drink the new make <laughs> just give it a sniff if you really want to taste it dip a pinky in you know just take a little drop of it and what always surprises me Mm-hmm. And clearly, you and I drink a lot of samples at natural cast strength. Taste. We taste a lot of samples. What did I say? You said we drink a lot of samples, <laughs> which, which has a different implication altogether. <laughs> I, I have been known to drink a sample or two. I will be perfectly honest this day. Um, um, yeah, when I, when I taste new make spirit, either uh-huh. it's 63.5% barreling strength, or Casking, in the yep. rare occasion that a stillman will run a sample uh, from the safe, I'm never overwhelmed by the alcohol. Hmm. I've I've never thought, oh, that's like drinking rocket fuel or jetliner fuel, right? I've I've always thought, oh, that's that's rich and oily. Oh, I really like what that's doing, and I still get flavors. So what I was trying to do here in tasting the, the sample was I was trying to put myself into the shoes of those who would only dip a finger or who would think, okay, that's, that is like rocket fuel. And, and I failed. I could not do it. Many men have tried. They tried and failed? They tried and died. <laughs> because I thought... That is so pleasantly oily on the palate. Yeah. There's no alcohol attack from it. So, so that's the first thing for me, is the oily presence. Um, I've done it before, and I, I think I maybe learned this from Jim McCune as well. If you actually do dip your finger into New Make Spirit mm. and then rub it uh, just kind of on the part of your hand that joins your finger to your thumb, whatever that part's called, uh, and crotch. let it... It's the hand and crotch. Let it, <laughs> It's your hand crotch. (laughs) If if you let that dry in your hand crotch, um, you'll actually see it go slick. Yes. Like you just put some moisturizer uh, onto your hand crotch. (laughs) And it's... It's really remarkable. And so... So, yes. So, definitely oily. Um, Here, let me go back for some flavors. So, while while you're looking for those flavors here... If you want to put yourself in the mindset of people that would view this as rocket fuel, what you have to do is first lick some salt, shoot the new make, and then bite into a lime. And I think that's <laughs> probably the best way to be doing it. 
Don't tempt me. <laughs> Definitely that, that aniseed comes back. Okay. Definitely in the form of a licorice. Okay. That's, that's really pleasant. The tinned pears that were on the nose yep. now continue across the palate as well. Definitely as more of a hard boiled candy. So more like a pear drop okay. rather than a, a tinned pear with that sweet syrup. Wow, look at him go. And then almost something that's like a dry, like a bone dry cardboard. Okay, so you've got a little bit of the tails going in on there. So uh, suggesting that they take a slightly later cut off their spirit still. But but not not cardboard in any kind of bad way. Sometimes if you get you know like a like a wet cardboard, it can suggest you know yeah. somewhat of a flaccid whiskey, matured yeah. whiskey. This is more just the dryness of it, even starting to suggest a little bit of astringency, oh, which yes. I think would be the sixty three point five percent alcohol oh, okay. drying out okay. the inside okay. of my mouth. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, that's that's a wonderful experience. Finish short. It it almost gets like a like a flatter fruit if you've had like a fruit gummy in kind of what's left in your mouth after you've consumed a fruit gummy. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah there's you know, it's lasting in the sense of I've got the residue from the oil on my tongue, almost a little waxy around uh, my lips, the inside of my cheeks. Um, as we famously said back in the day with our Ben Riak 17, um, imagine if you just licked a candle and and your mouth just starts to take on a little bit of that wax. That waxiness, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, mm. oh, nice. Very, very yummy. Yeah, very, very pleasant. That's a wonderful That's experience. Good. All right, now it's my turn. And, and I have sipped on this a little bit here it and helps. there. But to, to be honest... I was really focusing on on the texture, which I found to be lovely. So this time I'm going to go back in and I'm going to try to focus on some of the flavors. All right, here we go. You're supposed to be talking while they do this. I just figured you would edit out the silence. Mm-mm. Right? So, on the palate, the flavors are quite candied. It's it's almost, uh, the fruit is almost Jolly Rancher sweet. There's sour apple going on. There's a bit of raspberry going on in there. The finish is actually quite long. There's almost like a lemon curd mm. finish. Here. There's that lingering citrus. Yeah, that citrus, but there's this, a creaminess going on there as well. You know, it's interesting, going back to the nose, there was a, a, a pungency, a, a, what's the word? Is it fecund? A fecundity? That's it, fecund. Yep. Okay. And that remains on the nose and actually becomes a bit more apparent on the nose after tasting this, but it's only because when you taste this, you you are confronted with with fruit with all Jolly Rancher fruit sweetness. Yeah, really enjoyable. I, I liked it more on the palate than I do on the nose, to be honest. 
is it recognizable as a Kragenmore? From a a texture standpoint, I, similar to Kleinleash, though definitely not to the point that Kleinleash has it. I always found Kragenmore to have a nice waxy kind of presence to it. And Kragenmore mm-hmm. is one of my all time favorites. No one really pays attention to the brand, either fortunately for me or unfortunately for them, uh, because I enjoy it. I like the regular 12. I like the distiller's edition. And I like the, uh, you know, some of the special releases, the 10 year old. All right. I'm going to go taste the backwoods now. Good on you. Oh, wow. Back to the nose. There's it's almost like a, a spicy quality, like cooking spices, not like brown spices for baking, but more pepper, gray peppercorn going on in there. Um, even saffron. Mm. Like you think of saffron rice, that, that kind of saffrony note going on in there. That's really interesting. Mm. All right. Here we go. Saffron in a new make spirit would definitely be a new one. Mm-hmm. That's not a note that you're likely to find in Scotland, even though we're, you know, everyone in today's experiment is simply using malted barley. Why would saffron? Do you think it could be coming from the yeast? It could be would coming s- from the yeast. Saffron come from the yeast? Could it be coming from the environment? I don't know. Hmm. I don't know. Um, but the uh, the power maybe is, Lee maybe Lee has such unlimited funds he's actually just putting saffron into his mash and Spanish saffron that that's expensive. <laughs> it does give that beautiful orange color to his new make spirit though. <laughs> oh, is that why it's orange? This is just a joke. This is not a very good visual joke. Yes, uh, his new make is clear as water, just like new make is the world over. I am simply making a joke. There is no saffron in his mash. Mm. Think that was enough of a disclaimer, Joshua? I think so. Okay. I think our lawyers will want to speak to me after this episode. I hope so. (laughs) I mean, I hope not. Uh, (laughs) No, you are currently calling them, so if you could help. (laughs) So what are you getting on the palate there? A a sweet cinnamon note coming through Hmm. that is supported by... Hold on, I've got to take another sip. There was something in there that I did that I just couldn't grasp, but I love the cinnamon coming through. Mm. Banana. Definitely banana. And that's going to be, it's got to be from the yeast. That he's we know. using a Belgian brewer's yeast, right? That we, yep. That's, that one's a home run on knowing its source. Oh. A home um, run is something good that happens in baseball, Joshua, just so you know. It finishes like a nut brown ale. Mm. Like that really rich, heavy maltiness you get from a good nut brown ale. Mm. That's coming through here. Well, he certainly talked about the the crystal malts that are part of his mash bill in the Mm. interview. We did not follow up with any numbers from the Lovibond scale because clearly the higher your number on the Lovibond scale, the more kind of toasty, malty presence you get from it. Uh, Could you quickly, I know what it is, but just for our listeners that may not be familiar with the Lobby Bond scale. <laughs> um, it's, it's just the toasting level uh, on barley. So that, you know, the, the lighter it is, the lower it is on that Lobby Bond scale. The darker it is, the higher it is on that Lobby Bond scale. 
And so it's just a, a representative number that lets you know um, kind of how dark your toast is, how... how so it's almost like a color coding exactly, to match yeah. up your barley to... Exactly. So any of your chocolate malts yeah. are really far uh, to the dark end of the Lovibond scale. So they'll have a much higher number yeah. than those lighter malts that are on the, the opposite end of the scale. They will have a much lower number. Mm. The last thing that I'll add is a little bit of burnt coconut going on there. That's really nice. Really nice new make and, and a beautiful contrast to the to the Crag and more new make. But I, I think both of them have a wonderful presence on the nose. And what I found interesting comparing the two, now again, I'm going to preface this with I love Cragginmore, so don't let this detract from my love of Cragginmore. But I thought that the on the new make, the nose and the palate were disconnected. And you talked about it before. New make needs help. There's a reason you put it into oak. However, with the backwoods distilling, I found a clear connection with those cereal notes from from the nose to the palate and into the finish and and a wonderful evolution going on there. So, Lee, you are working with quality, quality new make. I've got no doubt good spirit going into good wood. It's going to equal good whiskey. I can't wait to try it. Yeah, agreed. Yeah, looking forward to tasting some of those experiments that he talked about sharing. Oh, the red gum. Yeah, that'll be interesting few of the others even just after exploring it as new make even just seeing what's it like a year in mm. you know what what's a year doing in australia given the climate given the atmospheric pressure mm. mm-hmm. given the movement in and out of the wood um i think a year is going to do a lot uh, for for lee's spirit so you like it when the wood goes in and out is that i knew you couldn't help yourself i knew you couldn't help yourself I, i'm just talking about atmospheric pressure I don't know what you're talking about. (laughs) (laughs) So listen, we need to, we need to move on because we did have some emails that came in. I I wanted to just throw a quick bit of news out there. If you wouldn't mind. One bit of news that I want to throw out there, Jason, is that Great Isle Swim bottles have been shipping, and they're almost all shipped out, which is good. It's very good. Very good. As of this recording, we have literally one bottle left for sale. When this episode drops, it will be long gone. However... Mm-hmm. I did want to give a little shout out to anybody who is still in search of one. We have a bottle that's up for bids at Scotch Whiskey Auctions. Mm-hmm. And 100% of the sale will go to an Isla charity. Yes. We are finalizing which charity that will be. It will be mentioned on the Scotch Whiskey Auctions sales page. And people have been coming in with emails and Instagram messages, their suggestion for for charitable organizations. So really mm. appreciate everybody who has chimed in. 
two other bits of news, Jason, that I want to put out there. Uh, we had our wild turkey lottery last week, uh, which which went off, and everybody has purchased their bottles. All of the whiskey should be bottled sometime mid-April, mid to late April, and then we get the bottles to our warehouse, and then we start shipping them out. At the same time those are being bottled, we're also bottling two batches of MGP light whiskey, uh, one of which will be for online sales. That's batch one at 54.1% alcohol. And then the second one, batch two, is going to be for retail at 51.3% alcohol. Uh, both are 12 years old, and you'll find batch one for $95 on our website, and batch two has a suggested retail price of $95. We, I stress suggested because some retailers may charge less, some retailers may charge more. That's one thing, unfortunately, we cannot control, but the suggested retail price is going to be $95 on that. Yeah, I'm excited to get those out as well. One thing we're trying to respond to is having products on our website for sale. <laughs> it's a problem that we didn't think we were going to encounter, uh-huh. but everything comes in, everything sells out, everything gets shipped. Okay. Let's see if we can bring in a batch of something and keep it on the website so that people who are just discovering us can go to the website and actually buy a product. So to that point, we will have a batch of uh, whiskeys coming. It's not going to be too soon, but it's not going to be too far away. We're just waiting to get into the bottling schedule. As soon as we have some more information, we'll definitely announce it here. We'll announce it on our Facebook page. We'll announce it by email, etc. Yeah, it's lovely when people reach out and say, when are you going to get more stuff on your website for me to buy? That's a, yeah. that's a very, very nice problem to have. So I, I thank everybody for all of their ongoing support yeah. uh, of singlecastnation.com. It's mm-hmm. absolutely tremendous. And we are working diligently to source casks uh, that are up to our standards. We're not going to start cutting corners now. None of our members want us to start cutting corners now on our selection process. So our standards remain high, uh, the quality of our selections remains high, and we're doing our absolute utmost to get more product, more bottles, more single casks, Mm -hmm. more batches, more double casks uh, onto the online store. So as always, watch this space, and listeners of the podcast are always the first to hear updates on what's coming in. Now is likely a good time to get over to some of the questions that came in. And if you wouldn't mind, I wanted to kick it off with an email we got from Dan Grison, um, Chicago guy. He was at our last Jubilee, and um, it was nice to, to stop and talk with him for a little bit. Uh, but he sent in a, a very cool question. The subject is titled simply, Just Wondering, dot, dot, <laughs> dot. It says, uh, Just Wondering. <laughs> Why is it always the penis with you, Joshua? <laughs> uh, so it says, hey guys, in paren, he said cleverly avoiding the who is mentioned first issue. Close paren. <laughs> so I've been wondering, why do distillers lower the ABV of the spirit when barreling? I know there are laws governing the highest ABV you can put, you can barrel a spirit at, but considering the cost of the barrels... When you're filling thousands of them, it seems to make financial sense to barrel it as high as an ABV as you can and cut it down after aging. 
But Dan goes on and he says, uh, I'm sure the accountants would be happy with that. So obviously there must be an advantage to cutting it before. Just curious what that advantage is. Thanks again for all that you do. Looking forward to all the great things Single Cast Nation has planned moving forward. Cheers, friends. Dan. Cool. Cool, yeah. cool, cool. It's a good question. Yeah. It fits in beautifully with what we're tasting today as well. Well, yeah, actually, that's a really, really good point. Um, yeah, well done. Dan knew what we are doing in the episode before we did. Which makes me a bit concerned that he has access to my calendar. <laughs> And uh, he knows what I'm going to be doing later this afternoon. Um, just keep that to yourself. <laughs> um, so there's, there's, a, there's a number of ways to go on this. There's, and, and again, it ties in beautifully with us talking about Glenn Farkless today as well. Uh, we can go the, the post-Second World War route when entry fills, uh, the ABV on entry fills, went north for a period of time. Let's, before you go on with your answer, which I think is a really good and smart answer from a Scottish perspective, looking at this question again, he's talking about legal limits for spirit entry into the cask. And as far as Scotland goes, there is no set legal limit. But in the US, there is, right? If, if you put spirit into a cask above 80% alcohol, uh, it become potentially comes a different spirit. And you can't necessarily call it bourbon. You might have to call it something else. And there are sort of industry standards for bourbon, you know, around 60% alcohol. And, and in Scotland, there's a specific reason for 63.4, alcohol. But we know... And, and you're about to talk about it, we know that there's historical reasons for a higher ABV for cask entry. And we also know of existing distilleries that by just by course of their own production standards, they always fill higher. So let's think about that as we're answering this question. Then there are also those who fill into barrel at lower strengths. And so I remember Steve McCarthy who owned Clear Creek Distillers. Yeah, Portland. Uh, or Clear, Clear Creek Distillery up in Portland, you're right, yeah. uh, which is now owned by Hood River Distillers, also just outside Portland. And he was filling into barrel at, at 50% alcohol. Wow, five zero. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and so I think all of this comes back to what, you know, part of my answer is to Dan here, is you're looking for your new makes best interaction with that wood. And there are some who think if you fill in at too high a strength, you don't get the same type of interaction. You don't get the same quality of maturation. So 63.5 became industry standard in Scotland because it was believed to have the best interaction with the wood. As my example goes, Steve McCarthy thought that his peated single malt that he was producing, you know, very early on, mm-hmm. um, you know, late, late night, very late nineteen nineties, very early two thousands. He thought the best interaction, the best development of flavors, came at fifty percent. So, it's it's really down to that individual distiller to ask themselves what do they want to get mm. out of their 
production, their maturation, their spirit, their whiskey. Let's think, too, what a lower ABV does. And this was something that Matt Hoffman taught us because Westland has been has played with varying cask-filling ABVs. But one of the things that he mentioned is a lower ABV gives you more color in your whiskey because water extracts color and a higher ABV is going to extract different flavors from the wood because alcohol extracts your flavor. So where's your medium ground? Do you want, especially if you're releasing whiskey at a younger age, it's kind of nice to have a darker color, especially if you're using larger casks. You can achieve that darker color using smaller casks, but then you have other things things to grapple with, things maturing too fast, spirit not maturing as as fast as the wood is sort of throwing itself on the spirit and so forth. So if you have a standard 53-gallon or 200-liter cask and you fill it at a lower ABV, you're going to get some nice color, but your flavor extraction is going to be different. Mm. When it comes to Scotch whiskey, yes, I think there was a general understanding that 63.4.5% alcohol got the flavors that the vast majority of the distillers were looking for. But the other thing that it, it did, because the angel share is so low and even throughout yeah. the industry, is that they knew at 10 years, 12 years, 20 years of age, and I'm talking on average, whether it's Craig and Moore or Glenn Farkless or Isle of Aaron or you know you name it, at 12 years of age, all of the casks are going to have around the same volume, around the same ABV. And when they need to trade those casks to fulfill or to fill their own blends, which is what really moves the Scotch whiskey industry, well, let's all fill it at the same ABV because we know come trading time, it's just even Steven. So yeah. there is a, uh, you know, there's, there's a pragmatic approach to it as well. Yeah, very good. Wonderful consideration as well. Yeah. Both sides of the business. But, you know, there's there's always exceptions to the rules. And you have distilleries as well that have decided that you change the ABV that you put into cask. And I think Wild Turkey is a great example of that, where they used to fill at a much lower ABV, which allowed them to do their 101 product, but really not much beyond that, unfortunately. Uh, but from an accountant standpoint, they said, well, let's make use of these casks and fill at a slightly higher ABV, save storage space, and save on wood. So hopefully, did, did we leave anything out that we wanted to, to mention in response to Dan's Definitely question? Definitely not. Okay. Definitely not. I think yeah. we covered that very well. Cool. Then we got a question that came in just before we started recording, and I saw the name. And said, Matthew Roberts. I said, geez, I don't know that name. And then I saw, it's Matthew Skinny Roberts. Ah, there you go. <laughs> who, we know uh, our Skinny. Yeah. Who is a brewer at Black Raven Brewing in Seattle, which made one of my all-time favorite uh, barrel-aged stouts, which, uh, which Matt was just very kind to send me. <clears throat> um, did you want to read this question or shall I? <clears throat> yeah, mine, mine got lost some, in the mail, but hey, we're moving some, on, moving on to the question. Yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> wow. 
really seem to How have about something. you read it since you got the stout? So okay. <laughs> so it says, boys, exclamation point. Here's a few things I reckon would make a good conversation for the podcast, but are also queries that I have. <laughs> so... <laughs> so we'll start off he with zigged the, when I was expecting him to zag. <laughs> he 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 sent me one question that I think we can answer with confidence. The second question, however, um, we'll see. Uh, let's see how we can tackle this. So it says wild speculation and supposition. I like it. <laughs> <laughs> how much truth is there to whiskey producers having sherry casks produced for them? For instance, my loose understanding is that some distilleries will have casks produced, age sherry in them for six months to a year or so, and then dump that sherry um, and use it to season more casks, or they distill that sherry into brandy or turn it into vinegar. All right, so that's question number one. Do you want to yeah, tackle that? All true. Okay. Yeah. Oh, was that was that it? It's true. <laughs> yeah, he's a hundred percent spot on. Yep. And that's exactly yeah. the understanding in the industry. And and we actually experienced that firsthand. I was going to add that part. Yes. Uh-huh. Without so, name, uh, did I'm we? Not gonna name, I'm not going to name names. Did we name them in our sherry episode? We may have, but I'm going to go <laughs> on the assumption that we didn't because we try to be gentlemen when we when we can be gentlemen yeah so we yes we have seen a distillery's casks in a bodega in Jerez that were made for that distillery yeah so actually to to take it even further but again without (laughs) mentioning names it's actually we saw a parent company who have laid down casks for their Various distilleries, um, and and they, and I'll leave it at that. I just love you nudging it up close to the edge of the cliff. Like a little nudge, a little and nudge. Then but yeah, I'll that's, leave it right there. Everything I mean, seems safe. I'll leave it right there. <laughs> but it's it's a crazy thing, right? Because. People are not drinking enough sherry, so they do have to produce these sherry casks. Yeah. And really all they want is the sherry to season the oak, and which does nothing to the sherry. I mean, they, I guess they could take the sherry and put it into a bodega system and let it get, not, yeah, sorry, and put it into a Solera system in their bodegas and, and let it get older, but there's... Uh, cooking sherry there's brandy that could be made there's plenty of vinegar that could be made and you and i saw some vinegar production yes we did right while we were in boyuyos so uh all of it is true uh, just like han solo said in uh, episode seven it's all true it's all true or <laughs> or as morgan freeman said in the first lego movie it's all true because it rhymes <laughs> Uh, now, question number two. I'm not going to be able to offer up much intelligent feedback on this, but maybe you could. Oh, this sounds dangerous. <laughs> so the subject is vacuum distillation. Okay. Says, 
my lab guy and I have chatted about this a few times, but figured it would be almost impossible for it to be done on a large scale. Also, the desired result is different from what most distillers want, the purest spirit possible. Do you know of any distilleries experimenting or utilizing vacuum distillation? I can't think of a single distillery that is use, <laughs> utilizing vacuum distillation. So how does vacuum distillation work? Well, it's easy. So you go to the store. And my preferred vacuum of choice is a Dyson, uh, though I've seen <laughs> some other people use a Black & Decker, um, <laughs> you know, for smaller things. Um, yeah, here, here, here's, here's the thing. And, and this is why I think whiskey is a constant, constant journey. You're always learning. I have heard of vacuum distillation. I don't know what it is. So I have some research to do and I'm happy to admit that on, on the podcast here because again, it's a journey. Uh, but having heard of it, does that mean you're not going to stop believing? No, I got to hold on to that feeling. Okay, just making sure we're on the same page. Yeah. Um, I have the tiger. It's a thrill of the fight. I'm going to rise up to the challenge of my rivals. Did Journey do I have the tiger? No, fucking okay. someone else did. Okay, I wonder why you kept going with that. I was only naming Journey songs. <laughs> I thought you were just naming like crappy 80s stuff. Like no, it's specifically Journey since you said Journey multiple times. Who did um, who, who did the song that was used in the Greatest American Hero? Uh, what's Greatest American Hero? Oh shit! It's the one that goes um, something about flying. Hold on, uh, <laughs> Greatest American Hero. American See this? This is hero. worth. This is this is yeah. this is worth researching on the yeah, spot. Yeah, vacuum distillation that can wait. That can wait. <laughs> but this, believe it or not, I'm walking on air. I never thought I could feel so free. Flying away on a wing in a prayer. Believe it or not, it's just me. <laughs> What is happening? I don't know. I don't know. So <laughs> here's what I like about the second question. Go ahead. I can definitively answer it from my experience within the industry. Now, are you talking within the Scotch whiskey industry? Or are you talking the industry as a whole? So you're including I, all 2,000 craft oh, distilleries. I'm, I'm global. In the U.S. Global. Global distillation okay. I am speaking to here. Okay. I Go personally ahead. don't know anybody who is vacuum distilling. What that has allowed me to do is completely dodge <laughs> the fact that I have no idea what vacuum distilling is. <laughs> but I have definitively answered the question that was asked. Yeah, you have, you have. I have heard of it. I just don't know what it is. And because I don't know of any distillery that has employed it, I haven't really gone down the rabbit hole to discover potentially what it may be. You know, I've heard of distillation that people like Brian Davis uses, right? For, uh, for him where it's, it's, it's aged incredibly fast using, you know, technology from the future 
And then you've got, you know, Cleveland. And that's what it said in the science book. <laughs> and that's what it said. <laughs> that science book that I saw you reading earlier definitely said using technology from the future. Uh-huh. You know what my great-grandmother used to say all the time when you say something smart? She would say, that's smart. You're smart. You're smart like two books. <laughs> wow. Wow. Um, so, yeah, I, no, I was, I was only going to add the same thing if you, as you. If Brian Davis is not doing it in Los Angeles at the Lost Spirits Distillery, then I don't know anybody who is doing it. Yeah. But if anybody is doing it, yeah. and they listen to this podcast... They should absolutely write in to questions at One Nation Under Whiskey, no E in whiskey, and we will spend time interviewing them for a future episode. That is brilliant. That's Thank smart, you. Jason. SMRT. See that? Smart. Woohoo! I'm a college man. I won't need my high school diploma anymore. I am too smart. I am too smart. I am too smart. I am too smart. SMRT. I mean, S-M-A-R-T. Thanks to Skinny for that question, that two-parter that we managed to work our way around and through. Uh, thanks to Dan Grison for his question as well. Greatly appreciate that. And, of course, the support from both those gentlemen. Wonderful, oh, yeah. wonderful people. Yep, yep. We had the pleasure of Lee Atwood's company on this episode mm-hmm. and a rather wonderful episode and interview it was. But now, Joshua, the clock on the wall is telling me we need to wrap it up. I know that that announcement makes you sad. It does. But I do believe that after our first aborted introduction, that we ran with high energy for the duration of this episode. And I, I think you're right. I fervently hope that our listeners have enjoyed our high energy in this episode. And I hope and trust that their own energy level has been increased just by course of, of listening to this episode. I certainly hope they didn't stand to attention for the entirety of the episode. Because if that happens, you do have to see a doctor. I would be upset if they didn't stand at attention for the duration of the episode. I don't know what it is for women. I only know that men have to see a doctor if they've stood to attention for the duration of One Nation Under Whiskey. Well, you, you stop taking the blue pills. Is, is, that's what you do. That's, that's wise. If Very you wise. stand at attention for more than four hours, seek medical attention. And Kim Jong-un isn't anywhere near you. You might want to add that so that we call that back to the Kim, beginning of the episode. It's Kim Jong-un. You have Kim problem, Jong-un. Kim Jong Un. I think it's a soft J, like jogging. <laughs> and my own name, Yashua. <laughs> and Jason. Jason. Jalen. That's it's a hard Y though. <laughs> when I when I tell my car or when I tell um, Siri to call you, she says. I say, you know, call Jason Johnston Yellen. And she says, do you mean Jason Johnston Y. Ellen? 
Oh, I like yes. that. Oh, I like that. You like that? Why, Why Ellen? Ellen? Oh, yeah. yeah. Takes me back to Sue Ellen in, in uh, the soap opera Dallas back in the 80s. Oh, Remember geez. Sue Ellen? Did she kill JR? Who killed JR? I think JR killed JR. Wasn't that the takeaway from that? Don't remember. Let's. Right. We're kind of in a new mode here. We're going to throw it back to Lee and then get out. And then get out. Yeah, that's I think us. That's, that's us. That's how we do business. So let's uh, let's toast to a really fun. Well, I found it fun. I found fun it episode. fun too. And uh, and a great conversation with Lee. And, and hope to Lee. Hope to talk with you again soon. And hope to see you in person, either on your turf or on ours. That makes it sound like a fight. I'm I'll see fu- you on your turf. Yeah, that's right. I'm going to go down there, and I'll see you on, <laughs> on your turf down there. <laughs> and on that note, Joshua, thanks to the listeners, thanks to Lee, thanks to those that wrote in, and thanks to you. Cheers, homie. <laughs> Cheers, brother. Probably the the misconception, I would, the first one I'll say that I won't talk about again, was the, the price, the price of Australian whiskey and why it is the price. And I think I've said enough about that, but... What are misconceptions? That none of you eat shrimp off the barbie. Is that? <laughs> That's right. Is it? Well, in, in this part of the world, we don't call them shrimp. We call them prawns. Oh, prawns. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, what about the misconception that this is a knife? When actually this yeah. is a knife. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <no, that's... laughs> uh, oh gosh. I just showed that to my boys for the first time maybe three months ago. They yeah. thought it was the funniest thing they'd ever seen. Uh, uh, they, uh, just, just that clip. I haven't even shown them the movie. Just that clip. Well, that's not a knife. This is a knife. Oh my God. <laughs> love they quote it all the time. So. There you go. What's that? Um, 80s Australian culture. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Sorry, conception. Yeah, uh, look, it's probably not. It's probably not a great one, but this is just something that gets my goat. So I'm not sure. Ooh, it's a I like it. Oh, it could be a grind, grind my gears. Yes. Yeah, from yeah. Yeah. Okay, yeah, grind my gears. <laughs> so you give a sample of your of your new make, or maybe even a cast sample, and people go, "Hmm, that's smooth." Yes. That's all you got. That's all you got. My heart. Speaking yeah. about that's smooth. I'm like, that didn't make it to be smooth, you know. Like, there's, so, there's so much other interesting things going on in a whiskey, and just for someone to say it's smooth just totally deflates me. So, if any listeners out there, please don't say it's smooth. <laughs> yeah, we've got to we've got to do more with our I think with our language of, of how we describe spirit and yeah, yes. I'm just going to say that. That's just going to go on repeat. And I think maybe five times I'll have to do that. (laughs) That's good to hear a producer say it as well. We're we're making our selections and then pouring them for people and smooth doesn't tell us anything about it, but it's great to hear someone who puts, you know, blood, sweat and tears into distilling it say, like you, you're not telling me anything about my product. I'd rather you didn't like it than called it smooth. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <that's laughs> Next time you get the raw stuff. <laughs> <laughs> we we had a, a couple of friends here a few days ago, and like great friends, dear friends, and, and his wife is not a whiskey drinker. And she declared that, but she re- really wanted to taste a little bit out of the car. So I just put the tiniest little bit in there. It's a 65 ABV, and she 
put it in her mouth and this this look of horror went on her face and she stepped out of the distillery and spat it out. <laughs> and, then, and then she walked back in and goes, that was smooth Call that a knife? This is a knife. That's not a knife, that's a spoon. All right, all right, you win. <laughs> I see you've plied knifey spoony before. <laughs>